Before we start, we have a recommendation for you. Check out the mother-daughter duo, Pamela and Amanda. They host the Amesh True Crime Podcast, where they uncover the darker side of family dynamics. Hey, True Crime fans. I'm Amanda. And I'm her mom, Pam. And we are inviting you to listen to our podcast, Enmeshed. We dive deep to give you fresh takes on stale relationships. Join us every Monday for an audio journey covering the darker side of family dynamics. Our episodes are around 30 minutes. We get right into it. We will guide you through intriguing lesser-known cases and famous crime stories involving murder, deceit, and the entangled family members who commit these crimes together or against each other. Check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And remember, some of the most poisonous people come disguised as family. Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. motives thanks for joining us this week we're excited that you're here and we're excited to bring you another case melissa has been working on this one for a little while i've been told yes it is a request from my son i think he's been requesting it for quite some time he has and like a good mama you're bringing it to him sometimes you gotta do it for the people you love (laughs) but we do love all of our listeners so we hope you guys will enjoy this case as well that's right today i'm gonna try and tackle the word burglary If you've been with us for any of our past episodes, you'll know that this word and I don't get along very well. It's Melissa's personal tongue twister. (laughs) It is, but I've been practicing, so hopefully you'll only have a few occasions to laugh at my expense. (laughs) I'm ready to laugh at your expense, like a true friend. Christy will make sure she points it out. (laughs) If you hear me giggle, it's not because of the horrific things that she's saying. It's because she couldn't say burglary. I think all of us have those words that we stumble on, though. Burglary is definitely one, Mm -hmm. but I've been practicing. So hopefully it goes well today, because we're going to be talking about Donald Nielsen, who was born Donald Nappy, much to his dismay, because Nappy means diaper in the UK. And that's where he's from. (laughs) (laughs) Donald Diaper? Yes. That's a crappy name. (laughs) It is a crappy name. (laughs) So many jokes in here about that. Was it a made up name for him? No, that was his last name. Oh, it was Nappy. Mm-hmm. So that would be like our equivalent of someone being called like Melissa Diaper. Yep. Oh, dear. He must have been bullied. He was. His last name would be a thorn in his side throughout his childhood. Aw. Until he changed it to Nielsen. Mm-hmm. You're following it so far, Christy. Good All job. All right. Woohoo! Ten seconds in and I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> he was the only child of Phyllis Mary Steed and Gilbert Nappy, and he grew up in Yorkshire, England. There were no reports of open abuse in his childhood, but at the tender age of 10, his mother passed away, and there was nothing he could do in the wake of her illness but just watch her die. Aww. After his mother's death, he was raised by his single father in what was described as an unhappy home. Oh, that's really sad. Mm-hmm. At school, just like you said, Donald was taunted and teased mercilessly by other children about his last name. Why are kids so mean, honestly? We still had a giggle about being named Nappy. That's true. But I wouldn't have teased (laughs) someone knowing that their last name was Nappy. I don't know. I think that would just be a natural thing for kids to do. Yeah. Unfortunately. Doesn't make it right. No. According to a former classmate, this caused Donald to seek out opportunities to show off his physical prowess and assert his dominance. The teasing and wanting to prove himself followed Donald into his young adulthood, where he gladly joined the army for his two-year mandatory commitment. With his desire to feel powerful and be in control, to Donald, the armed forces seemed like the perfect fit for him. He became obsessive about serving and about firearms. Oh no. Yeah, and this obsession he would continue for the rest of his life. But he wasn't a natural in the military role at all. While Donald wanted to be the one in charge, he was a little bit of a bumbling sort that was easily flustered. He also wasn't great at taking direction from others. Instead, he believed himself to be the true leader 
and developed a chip on his shoulder whenever he wasn't the actual leader. Oh, so he had something to prove. Mm Mm-hmm. He was obsessive over staying physically fit, but it sounded like he lacked coordination no matter how muscular he made his five foot seven inch frame. Oh, so he's not very tall either. Nope. I can imagine that that would have added to the teasing and bullying by the kids as well, especially as he got older and all the other boys skyrocketed past his height. It did seem to kind of play into his feelings of inadequacy and then his need to prove himself constantly. Yeah, it seems like a sensitive subject for a lot of guys. Mm Mm-hmm. His first time through basic training, Donald failed. He would eventually make it through the physical training, but mostly because of his wits. He did have an above average IQ. Donald served in active duty in Cyprus, Aden, and Kenya, where he learned jungle warfare with the King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry and made it to the rank of Lance Corporal. Oh, wow. So he really had to work for getting to where he was. He did, and he enjoyed the national service and found his niche there even though his bunkmates still made fun of his last name. He was described as an enthusiastic, if indifferent, soldier that kept mostly to himself. He wasn't really a people person, but he did seek the approval of others. Which is explainable if he had grown up being bullied so much. Mm -hmm. I think he just learned to avoid people. In 1955, Donald, at the age of 19, met Irene Tate while on leave, and the two were married. Irene wasn't a fan of being a military wife, and when she gave birth to the couple's first child, a daughter named Catherine in 1960, she persuaded Donald to leave the military so that he could be more present in his daughter's life. He begrudgingly agreed, and the little family settled in Bradford. So is some resentment going to start brewing? Mm -hmm. The military was really the only place that Donald ever felt any success in his life. One thing Donald did not have to be persuaded about, though, was changing his own last name so that when he passed it on to his daughter, she would never have to face the humiliation that he had experienced as a child. Around the same time that his daughter was born, he formally changed his name to Donald Nielsen, leaving behind all the crappy jokes that his nappy last name had. Wah, wah, wah. (laughs) It's actually a kind thing for him to think of his daughter, like that was his motivating factor for it. It shouldn't matter what your last name is, but kids were cruel and he didn't want her to go through that. That's right. And that's how much it affected him as a child. And he didn't want anybody having to live through that again. Right. Well, even in his adulthood, the military people were still teasing him. Exactly. And there are a couple of different theories on why Donald chose Nielsen as a last name. Neither have been substantiated or confirmed by him. But the first was that he had purchased a taxi from a man named Nielsen and chose to adopt the name because he liked it. Another theory was brought forward by a lodger who had stayed with the Nielsen family during the time that Donald changed his name. She said that Donald took the name from the ice cream truck that frequented the area because it made him happy. Now that I could understand. (laughs) I could be called Christy Potato Chips. (laughs) Or chocolate. (laughs) Christy Chocolate. (laughs) It's got a nice alliteration sound to it. That's true. Either way now, going by the name Donald Nielsen, he left the military to become a civilian again. Over the next five years, Donald tried his hand at a number of different jobs, working in the building trade, as a security guard, and even running a taxi firm. But financial success just always seemed to be out of his reach. While he was the kind of guy that could do many things, he didn't really do any of them very well. Oh. Like in his youth, he blamed others for his problems. It was the boss that didn't understand him, or the immigrants that had it so easy and took jobs away from him. There is always an excuse. And that is a dangerous personality trait to have when you cannot take accountability for the situation that you're in. Mm -hmm. No matter what excuse he used, it all boiled down to one thing. Anything he tried to do didn't seem to work out the way he planned. And plan he did. Donald was a detail-oriented person that planned things down to the minute detail. When things didn't go according to the plan, Donald always found someone else to blame for his misfortunes. It was never his fault. Oh, not good. Irene and Catherine were often the focus of his blame. And the more things didn't work out for him, the more domineering and overbearing he became towards them. He enforced military discipline on them at home, particularly his daughter, and rarely permitted them to visit friends or even have friends. What? Mm-hmm. So he's taking a quick turn into dirtbag here. Yep. All because things aren't turning out the way he had planned them. Yeah, and like your young daughter has anything to do with that. Shame on you. Donald liked situations where he could be in control of everything. 
and he had never really given up his military fantasies about being the commanding officer. So on weekends and holidays, he would make his wife and daughter dress up in military uniforms to reenact military battles that he could control and always win. Get out! No, I'm not kidding you. He would arm them with wooden rifles and fake stick grenades and drive them around in his army surplus Land Rover. No way! Uh huh. It gets worse. He would pose them for photographs as if they were dead or wounded, <gasps> pouring ketchup all over them to mimic blood. No! Mm -hmm. Melissa, this is not okay. All the while, he played the directing commander and chief. Oh my goodness. His family photo albums were filled with pictures of his wife and daughter laying down with ketchup all poured over them as wounded or dead soldiers. And did they think this was fun? Like, did they pose with their tongue sticking out, like right into it? Or were they scared and had to comply? It sounds like more they had to comply. He was an absolute militant father and husband. And how disturbing that would feel being his wife or daughter. You're not eight years old playing with your friends in the backyard. Then I could see you like, yeah, let's get the ketchup. Yeah, that'll look so cool. <laughs> no, this is the people that you're supposed to love the most in the world. And you want to pretend that they're dead and take photos of them. He just really loved being that military commander. Yeah, but that's disturbing. That's mm -hmm. trying to bring it to fruition. Yeah. Unfortunately, in his financial life, Donald was anything but in charge. He was an absolute failure. In 1965, he started to devise a plan that would fix that. A plan that involved a life of crime. Let me guess, burglary? Burglary, you got it. <laughs> I only know that because of our conversation about the word burglary. <laughs> exactly. Prior to 1965, Donald had never had any arrests or run-ins with the law. But as a way to remedy his money problems, he meticulously started planning burglaries. She's Good impressed. job! I'm impressed! <laughs> he became very proficient at the process of breaking into people's homes and stealing from them. He targeted middle-class homes because he believed that those were the only people that kept cash at home. He worked alone, and he always looked for cash or similar assets, things that he did not need to fence, so he wasn't taking possessions. He did a lot of reconnaissance for his jobs and always had an escape route planned. Over the next four years, he developed a routine that he would consistently follow. Using a brace and a bit, he would cut a hole in a window large enough to fit a screwdriver or a coat hanger through that he would then use to open the latch of the window. Once inside, he would cut the telephone wire of the house. He would then sneak into the home wearing all black, hooded with a balaclava, and find whatever valuables he could see. He got so good at creeping in that he would do it while people were still asleep. Oh my goodness. Being able to tiptoe into their bedrooms without waking them. And he would have felt such a sense of control being able to do that. For Donald, it was all about control. It's like he's addicted to that feeling. Mm-hmm. And how creepy. Yeah, we talked about that in your Tweed Creeper case. Yeah, that's the vibe it's giving me for sure. He was really disturbing. Donald was believed to have carried out over 400 burglaries, all without being caught, and became well known to the West Yorkshire Constabulary, gaining him the nickname the Brace and Bit Robber. Yeah, no kidding. 400 break-ins. Could you imagine? No. If he put that much time and effort into working hard, maybe he would have made some money. Exactly. But for all of his work and planning that went into committing these robberies, Donald never hit it big. So he had to come up with a new plan that was going to make him even more money. Yeah, why was he not hitting upper class? I don't know. Middle class people don't have loads of money laying around. Maybe that was his first big mistake. <laughs> he hit the wrong clientele. <laughs> but for whatever reason, he wasn't finding a lot of cash laying around in people's houses. Right. So he had to find a new plan that was going to make him some more money. In 1967, he began to break into sub-post offices and steal greater amounts of cash. A sub-post office in the UK is a small local post office offering fewer services than the main post office buildings. The building is often attached to a residence of the postmaster that runs the sub-post office. While a sub-post office was smaller than the regular post office and didn't carry as much cash on hand, they also had less security and they dotted all over the countryside. So I can see why he would choose that to target. Yeah, it made a really good target for him. Donald was meticulous in planning his raids, and he would spend weeks researching and preparing for a break-in. He went masked, 
wearing gloves, and dressed head to toe in black and would enter the premises through the residential section of the post office. This area was usually less secure than the post office itself. Yeah, that makes sense. He would then look for the keys of the post office part of the building. These were often found in a drawer or in the trousers or jacket pockets of the sleeping inhabitants. Ooh, that's eerie. Him looking through your pant and jacket pockets? As they're sleeping in bed, he's creeping around their bedroom looking for the keys to get into the post office. Yeah, he could be picking that pair of pants off your bedpost and digging in them while you're drooling and sawing logs. That's what he did. Ooh. While he did it, he carried loaded weapons to ensure that he was not met with any resistance. After all, every good soldier needs a gun. But did anybody ever wake up while he was robbing them? Yep, and we're going to get into what happens to them. Okay, but he did the first 400 without that happening. That's right. Wow. Yeah, he was never caught for any of the 400. That's remarkable. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that in a good way that I'm commending him, but that is really interesting. It was one of the few things that Donald would excel at. I was going to say, too bad it's such a crappy thing. Yeah. But I didn't want to go back to the nappy. (laughs) (laughs) And he seemed to excel at this new challenge, too. In three months, he had stolen over 9,000 pounds, which is almost 115,000 Canadian today. Ooh-wee. In three months, that's not a bad paycheck. No. Most of the money that was stolen was in the form of postal orders, which were like checks that Donald would then cash in far-out-of-the-way little towns. And he would grow confident enough to taunt the police by signing his name, Beware, or Sea Trail. Wow. He got really cocky about it. Yeah. But after 400 break-ins without being caught, you would be pretty confident. It's true. On February 16, 1972, things would change a little bit. Donald broke into a sub-post office in Haywood, Lancashire. That night, he was not as silent as usual, and his entrance alerted Leslie Richardson. As Leslie came out of his bedroom to investigate the sound, he met the masked Donald in the hallway. They fought, and the gun that Donald was carrying went off, hitting the ceiling above the two scrapping individuals. Donald was able to get away that night, but Leslie had been able to get his mask off and provided the police with a description, albeit not the greatest one. For the first time, though, police had a face to put to the brace and bit robber. And I'm sure it shook Donald up a little bit. Well, you would think that. He was surprised by this turn of events and was taken off guard. He had shot his weapon out of frustration for his plan being interrupted and his inability to cope with the changing situation. But almost immediately, Donald was at it again. Two years later, he would again be confronted while breaking into a sub-post office. Unfortunately, this time, it would not end so lucky for the inhabitants. Oh, no. In February 1974, Donald broke into the sub-post office Harrogate in North Yorkshire. After failing to find the keys, he woke up and tied up the postmaster's 18-year-old son (gasps) and demanded to know where the keys were. No way! Mm -hmm. So he went through the parents' bedroom, couldn't find them in any trousers or in any drawers. And then he decided that he would wake up the son to find out where the keys were kept. Because the son would be the least amount of threat towards him. Yeah. The commotion, though, was heard by the sub-postmaster, Donald Skipper. And he attacked the masked man. As he fought the intruder, he was shot and later died from his wounds. Oh, trying to protect his son. Mm -hmm. The poor 50-year-old never had a chance against Donald and his gun. Donald fled without any money that night. And once again, he could be ID'd from the witnesses that he left behind. The connection between the two cases was easily drawn. Even though the eyewitnesses' pictures for the brace and bit robber didn't match, police were confident that it was the same person. Oh, yeah. None of this, though, dissuaded Donald from committing more crimes. He laid low for only six months before committing his next murder. So was he not even bothered that he killed this man? Nope. He just moved on with his next plan. So it's just a job hazard. Absolutely. And he actually blames them. What? Like if they would have just let me rob them, they wouldn't have died? That's right. What an entitled dirtbag. The only thing that he really gets upset about is that he wasn't able to get away with any money. Wow. He's rotten. He is. He's just so selfish. After six months, he entered the sub post office in higher Baxendale. Derek Austin awoke on September 6th to find an intruder in his bedroom. A fight broke out. Unknown to Donald... Derek was a former member of Britain's elite Royal Marines, and he was determined to beat back the intruder, even if it had to be with the only weapon he could get his hands on, a vacuum cleaner. Good for him. 
Unfortunately, the vacuum cleaner was no match for the 22 pistol that Donald held. Oh, no. Derek was shot once in the shoulder as the two tumbled out onto the landing on the stairs. Derek, injuries and all, momentarily got the edge on Donald and threw him down the stairs. But as Donald gained his footing and stood, he calmly raised the gun and with a blank cold stare fired another shot into the abdomen of the man that had fought bravely to protect his family. Derek crumbled to the ground in front of his wife and children who had all ran out. No way. He would later die from his injuries in hospital. And as the family gathered around Derek, Donald fled down the stairs into the night. How terrible for that family. Those kids to watch their dad die. Mm -hmm. Their whole sense of safety ruined. Because it's happening in their own home. Yeah, that's where you should be the safest. Yep. Home invasions are the worst. They're hard to recover from. Yeah. And even if nobody dies and things are just stolen, it's still such an invasion that a lot of people have difficulty going on living there. Understandably. This instance led to another description of the shooter being provided. But again, it didn't match the other two descriptions provided by the other eyewitnesses. But based on the MO, again, the police made the leap to conclude that this was the work of the brace and bit robber. Only now, the press were calling him the Black Panther based on the description provided to the police by Derek's wife. She had said that Donald had moved quickly like a panther and was dressed all in black. Yeah, so I can see how they would give him that nickname then. However, I do think it's too cool of a name for a dirtbag like that. He actually gets referred to as the Pink Panther because of how bumbling he is later on. Really? Yep. But even the Pink Panther's too cool to be him. (laughs) It's true. But either way, the Black Panther was born. And despite the lack of media coverage, he was well-known by police in surrounding areas. And you'd think with all the people looking for him, Donald would lay low. But his confidence only grew, and he added more guns to his arsenal and came up with a new method of entry. One that was even more daring. He planned to walk right up to the door and knock. What? Mm Mm-hmm. On November 11th, Sidney Grayland and his wife Peggy were stock-taking around 7 p.m. at their post office in Langley, Worcestershire. Unlike the other sub-post officers, the Greylands didn't live on the premises and were just getting ready to leave when Sidney heard a knock at the door. When he opened it, there was Donald, with a torch and a bottle of ammonia attached, which he planned to spray onto Sidney. Sidney, too, though, was an ex-serviceman and put up a fight. In the tussle, Donald ended up spraying himself with the ammonia and had to rip off his own mask. <gasps> Good! Yeah, he did this just as Peggy was coming from the storage room to see what the commotion was. Oh. Enraged that Sidney was fighting back and that he had once again been unmasked, Donald shot at Sidney. And then as Peggy rushed over to her injured husband, he smashed her over the head, pistol whipping her and <sighs> fracturing her skull with his force. Sidney died that night. Oh. Luckily for Peggy, two passing police officers noticed the lights on in the post office after hours and came to investigate. They found Peggy in a pool of blood and rushed her to the hospital where she would later recover and was able to provide a description of the attacker. Police matched the bullet casings from the scene with the two other murders committed by the Black Panther, but they were still unable to make a suspect profile because Peggy's description did not jive with the previous ones given. Oh man. He has over six descriptions given of him and none of them are accurate. That's the thing sometimes with witness descriptions. But now he's turned serial killer. This is his third killing. Mm -hmm. And it just speaks to how evil he is that he was wanting to light them on fire. Isn't that what he had with the ammonia and the torch? Wasn't that to light them on fire? Well, I'm not really sure because torch in the UK is a flashlight. Oh, (laughs) okay. So I think like he had a spray bottle of ammonia. Oh, I was like when you said a torch Torch, and ammonia, I was like, he's burning this place down. I left it as torch because I don't know if they meant torch or if they meant flashlight in the description of the crime. Okay, this is bad. That's even more bizarre than a flashlight (laughs) and a little squirt bottle. Pew, pew. Like, what was he going to do with that? Like, ammonia will choke you. Yeah. But I think the flashlight was to shine it in his eyes right away just to kind of disarm him. And then you squirt him with ammonia and then he couldn't see him after. I don't know what his plan was. To disorientate him? Yeah. Maybe. maybe? I don't know. I'm getting like Lego movie vibes. Pew, 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 pew. (laughs) With the squirt bottle. It's not funny, but we're laughing because it's just so bizarre. It is. Remember, he's a little bit of a buffoon. Even though he's super 
intelligent, he kind of comes undone if it doesn't go exactly the way that he plans it. Yeah, this is the guy who pours ketchup on his wife and daughter, pretending Mm -hmm. that they're dead. He's a little bizarre. He's terrible. Even when he was fighting with these people, it sounded like they were getting the jump on him. But then something would happen and he would just be able to turn it around. Yeah, he's a lucky son of a gun. Yeah. And none of his plans work out because of his own cunningness. It's just kind of all mishap. Yeah. Even the police showing up and discovering Peggy after it's happened. Like, why couldn't they have been 10 minutes earlier? Yeah. Oh, so unfortunate. There were a significant amount of police hours, though, spent trying to catch who the Black Panther was. Oh, I believe it. But even though he had killed three people and the police were concerned, the media didn't take much interest in Donald's crime sprees. Donald was unimpressed by the lack of attention that he was getting, and he was even more unimpressed by the lack of money that he'd been able to steal. He had only been able to get away with 800 pounds from the Grayland sub-post office. That's so sad. That's what was important to him. Like, what a value to put on a life. That's so disturbing. But he did console himself with the fact that he had been working on another plan for quite some time. One that he was almost ready to hatch, and one that would pay a lot more money. Ooh, is he going to rob a bank? No, much worse. Oh. In May 1972, Donald had read an article in the Daily Express about Leslie Whittle and about the 82,000 pounds that she had inherited when her father, George Whittle, passed away. And today, that works out to be 630,000 pounds or just over 10 million Canadian. 10 million? Mm Mm-hmm. Whoa. George was the owner of a coach company. And when he died, he left his children a substantial amount of money. There was a disagreement in the family, and the dispute over the division of the 300,000 pound inheritance made media headlines. Donald felt it was unfair for anyone to get that kind of money if they hadn't worked for it. He felt he had been working for his money all along. What? You're stealing other people's hard-earned money. But he felt that he was doing hard work on making all of his plans. His paydays were justified. Right. But how hypocritical even that no one deserves that amount of money. Come on. While he's all about the money. Yeah. And had George not earned all of that money with the company that he had? Yep. But Uh, Donald didn't see it that way. No. After three years of planning, Donald was ready to put the wheels of his plan into motion. On the night of February 14th, 1975, he crept into the Whittle home in Highly Shropshire and silently broke into the 17-year-old's bedroom. At gunpoint, he forced Leslie from her bed and into a dressing gown and slippers before taking her into his awaiting car where he bound and gagged her. No way. So now he's kidnapped. Uh Uh-huh. Before exiting the house, he left a ransom note on the lounge table on top of a box of chocolates. Wow. You can just see him escalating. He has no regard for anybody. No, not at all. The ransom note he had meticulously prepared using Dymo tape. It read, no police, 50,000 pound ransom to be ready to deliver. Wait for telephone call at Swan Shopping Center telephone box, 6 p.m. to 1 p.m. If no call, return following evening. When you answer, give name only and listen. You must follow instructions without argument from time you answer. You are on a time limit. If police or tricks, death. Swan Shopping Center, Kidderminster, delivered 50,000 pounds in a white van. 50,000 in all old notes, 25,000 in ones, 25,000 in fives. There will be no exchange. Only after 50,000 has been cleared will victim be released. Oh my gosh. How terrifying for the family. The next morning when Leslie didn't come downstairs, her mother went up to her bedroom and that's when she discovered her daughter missing. Oh, I cannot even imagine. As she passed through her daughter's lounge area, she spotted the ransom note. Against the instructions on the ransom note, Leslie's brother cautiously contacted the police. Oh. What would you do in that situation? They're a family that has the money. Would you just follow the note or would you contact the police? I don't know. Honestly, my first instinct would be to want to call the police because how are we equipped to deal with someone like that? But if you thought that your family member's life was in danger? Yeah, that if you contacted the police, your daughter could die? Right. You couldn't live with that either. No. I don't know how you make that decision. No. In this situation. Do you know what you would choose? I don't. After researching this case, I might be less inclined to connect with the police. Huh. It's one of those situations that you have no idea what you would do until you're put in that situation. No, not at all. 
But Leslie's family did connect with the police. On their advice, they made plans to follow the ransom note. They collected 50000 from their bank account, which the police then photocopied to track the serial numbers on the banknotes. Then they headed off to the Swan Shopping Centre to await the call from the kidnapper. Just the family or were the police with them? The police were undercover, so they sent just Leslie's brother. Okay. As they were waiting, the first big blunder in the case occurred. There were a lot of unfortunate things that happened during this case that would ultimately lead to Leslie's death. Oh no. The first was that the police had not officially issued a media ban from the very beginning, thinking that they were already keeping things quiet. As Leslie's brother, Ronald, waited for the phone to ring under the watchful eye of undercover agents who were strategically placed, a freelance reporter received the leak story about the <gasps> ransom situation. No. The whole supposedly secret mission was announced all over the media channels as breaking news while they were trying to make the switch. So that journalist is basically responsible for her death. I mean, they're not because they didn't kill her, but for shame. The media did take a lot of blame for this case. Yeah, you don't advertise that this is happening while it's happening. Yeah, well, that's not the worst of what happens. That is so selfish of that reporter to run with that story. Yep. When the story broke, the judgment call was made to remove Ronald Whittle from the situation because they feared that the kidnapper might think everything was a trap and panic. They didn't want to put anybody else in danger, so they took Ronald out of the situation. An officer was given charge to watch over the phone to see if a call would come in, but with all the press talking about the breaking story, they believed that Donald, unknown to them at the time, was going to be scared off. Six hours into the vigil over the phone, around midnight, the payphone started to ring. No one answered it. What? There was some conflicting reports about what actually happened. There was one saying that everyone had packed up and gone home. And there was another report that said that the officer that had been left to wait by the phone in his angst to get the recording equipment running when the phone rang, that he actually didn't get to the phone in time to pick it up and answer it. Oh, that seems more plausible to me. It does. Why would the police ever just leave when they've been instructed to stay there till 1 p.m. the next day? Mm -hmm. Oh, could you imagine being that officer and stumbling with the equipment, trying to get it going, and then the phone stops ringing? Your oh. heart would just sink. Yeah. On the second night, the police and Ronald returned to the designated spot to await the call that would give them further instructions. So they just assumed, oh, he'll call again tomorrow? Yeah, because that was in the ransom note. Oh, okay, sorry. That he said, and if no call comes through, return the next night. Okay. So they return, and no call ever came. The police assumed that it was because, again, the kidnapper had been scared off because of the media's attention. There were reporters showing up at the shopping center wanting to capture the information exchange with no thought to Leslie's life being in danger. One of the commanding police officers said media were in his face saying, hey, when do you think it's going to go down? What angle should we capture this from? That's terrible. Just totally self-serving. Mm -hmm. This is a 17-year-old girl's life that was in the balance. It was a huge story. She was a local heiress that had been kidnapped in the close-knit former mining community. It was just a small village, really, and Leslie was one of their own. So there was a huge media following. Yeah, but what's more important? Letting all the readers know what's happening or saving this girl's life? Oh, absolutely. It's almost like, oh, well, if we get her killed, then we have an even bigger story to run. It's just so sad. She was described as a loving girl that anyone would have wanted as a daughter. Dirt bags. They're all dirt bags. Mm -hmm. It gets worse. On January 16th at 11.45 p.m., a call came through to the Whittle home. There was a recording of Leslie's voice. It instructed her brother to go to the telephone box in Kids Grove with the ransom money. This time, working with Scotland Yard, Ronald was wired and sent completely on his own to the telephone box. And how old is Ronald? He was an adult. I was picturing this other teenage kid. No, he was much older than her. Oh, okay. And he was the man of the house now that his father had passed away. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. At this point in the investigation, police had no idea that it was the Black Panther that they were working with. There was no connection made between the kidnapper and the murderer that had been killing sub-post officers. Yeah, why would there be? He had never done anything like this before. That's right. So because they didn't make this connection, they falsely believed that the kidnapper wasn't capable of murder. If they could have only connected the dots of what was happening around them, 
they would have known that the kidnapper was very capable of murder. That's surprising to me that they wouldn't think that a man who can walk into a house and snatch a girl from her room would not be capable of murder. Right. I think their thinking was that he needed her alive to collect the money and that his main motivation was the money. I get that, but I would not be taking that off the table. No. While one police department was heading up the kidnapping case of Leslie Whittle, another local police department was investigating a shooting that had taken place overnight on the 15th. So that was the second night that no call had come through. Gerald Smith, the security guard for the Freightliner Depot in Dudley, was just a few miles away from Kids Grove. Donald had been scoping out the place and had been interrupted by the security guard just doing his rounds. When questioned by the security guard, Donald answered by shooting 44-year-old Gerald six times without remorse, just for getting in the way. Oh. As police investigated this scene, they failed to notice the green Morris 1300 car that Donald had abandoned there. The car wouldn't be discovered for another eight days. Oh my. It just sat there untouched with evidence inside that would crack the case wide open. Hmm, that's surprising as well. There were just so many areas in this case that could have turned out differently had different decisions been made. Yeah. So on the night of the 16th, as the third attempt was being made to connect with the kidnapper, the local Stratfordshire Police Department were warned by the West Mercia officers not to go anywhere near the park to avoid scaring off the kidnapper. They unfortunately were not appraised of the situation or asked for their expertise with the lay of the land beyond some preliminary directions to Kids Grove. They were jokingly told to stay in bed. Staff were told not to alert senior detectives because it would cost Leslie Whittle her life. They were, quote, asked to keep all our patrols away from Bath Pool Park that night, which they adamantly swear they did. Ronald, who was not familiar with the Kids Grove area, got lost for almost an hour as he drove to Kids Grove. Oh, can you imagine the panic as no, you're getting lost? I couldn't. No. You would feel so sick. By the time that he got to the park, it was nearly 3 a.m. And in the dark, it took him another 30 minutes to find the second Dymo tape message that instructed him to go to Bath Pool Park, an area a short distance away. Could you imagine just frantically searching this phone booth, trying to find any sort of message at 3 a.m. in the morning in the dark? No, I cannot imagine that panic. Yeah. Your father's just passed away and now your sister has been kidnapped. Mm -hmm. When he got there... What the message instructed him to do was to flash his lights and the kidnapper would respond by flashing their own flashlight. Ronald did all of this, but he never received any signal back. Oh no. And the ransom drop was eventually abandoned. The next morning, Scotland Yard told the Staffordshire police that it would conduct a discreet investigation around the drop site. For the next two days, they combed the area but found nothing that they considered significant. Unfortunately, they failed to spot several key pieces of information lying around that were later found by people visiting the park. No way. People just strolling in the park were able to find these things and investigators could not. Yep. What? Like, we don't like to bash our police forces, but the ball was dropped in this case, it seems. Yeah, there was a lot of miscommunication going on. There were so many departments working on so many different sides of this story that they did not communicate very well. They were kind of stepping on each other's toes or getting their egos hurt. And so the people that knew the area, the Stratfordshire police, wanted to go in and do an investigation of their area. And Scotland Yard was like, no, we're in charge of this. We'll do it. And because they weren't trying to alert the kidnapper if he was still watching the area, they didn't want to just go out and patrol in their uniform. So they were casually strolling through the park looking for evidence. Yeah, but the citizens who found it were doing just that and they managed to find it. Mm -hmm. Unknown to all of them at this time, the drainage shaft where Donald had hidden Leslie was just a few meters away from where her brother had parked his car <gasps> that night. No way. She was right underneath of him. Yep. <gasps> just a few meters away. No, Melissa, that is heartbreaking. It just makes it so sad. Over the next few days, the trail went cold. A strict media ban was implemented to make sure that no more leaks jeopardized the case. But Leslie's brother and mother were encouraged to make appeals through the media for the kidnapper to contact them. Ronald pleaded with the public for someone to contact them and let them know how to get Leslie back. 
He also made it clear that they would only follow up with anybody that could give proof that Leslie was still alive. The poor family had been receiving so many hoax calls that they had to weed through the garbage calls to find the ones that actually contain useful information. Stop. Is that not just disgusting? That is beyond disgusting. Yeah. I wish I could put a curse on all those people that they would never stop hiccuping for the rest of their life. It's just so sad that you would do that to a family already in distress. And why? What is the purpose? Yeah, I don't know. And so many of them. It's not like it was just like one creep who was like, oh, yeah, this would be funny. Ha ha ha. No, there were many that came through. So many that Ronald, when he made his statement on live TV, said we've been receiving so many hoax calls. I'll only believe the person that has proof that Leslie is still alive. That's disgusting. Mm -hmm. No contact was ever made again from the kidnapper. (gasps) Had he already killed her? I believe that by the time Ronald was making these pleas... That Leslie was already dead. Oh, no. And that's why Donald never reached out to them again. Because he couldn't prove that she was alive. That's right. Just when they were beginning to think that there was no way to crack the case, that's when Donald's stolen green Morris 1300 was found and processed. Inside the car that was abandoned the night that Donald shot Gerald Smith, police found lots of suspicious items. The police investigating the kidnapping were called in and with trepidation played a recorded cassette tape that was found inside the car. They hoped against hope that it was just music, but it was what they all dreaded. The recording was Leslie's voice giving directions to the next drop-off location and telling them where to find the next message. In the recording, she is calm and clear as she tells her mother, No need to worry, Mum. I'm okay. Uh, I'm, I got a bit wet, but I'm quite dry now. I'm being treated very well. The message ends with a questioning, okay? Like she's seeking confirmation that she had delivered the message that she was supposed to give. Oh. In the car, police also find four other envelopes that contain details for four different phone boxes all over Midlands. When police followed the directions in the envelopes, they discover it was the path that Ronald was supposed to take the first night of the kidnapping when he missed the telephone call. The route led to two kiosks in Dudley, just yards from where Donald had abandoned the green car. The last message directed Ronald to drive across the bridge to the Freightliner Depot, Gate 8, by the Dudley Zoo. This was directly in line with the place where Gerald Smith was shot. Matching ballistic evidence to the other sub-post office murders, police now knew with certainty that Leslie's kidnapper was the Black Panther, someone they knew could fly off the handle and kill at any time. Oh man, they must have felt so panicked making that realization. There is a documentary that I watched with the police officer that oversaw this kidnapping, and he pretty much breaks down when he plays this recording and they make that realization that they hadn't took in him seriously enough. Oh, I can't even imagine. That would haunt you forever. It does. Police now believe that there was no phone call made that second night because Donald had been unable to place the call and arrange things at the depot because his plans had been interrupted by Gerald. And the interruption would eventually cost Gerald his life. Over a year later, he would succumb to the six gunshot wounds he received that night. Over the next nine months, over 200 officers were assigned to hunt the Black Panther. Police who worked the case claimed that they, quote, learnt everything there was to know about the killer, except his name and address. They felt the enormity of the pressure to produce answers for the Whittle family. As the investigation dragged on, the police tried new avenues to produce leads. To convince the Black Panther that Ronald Whittle was a trustworthy guy, they made a ploy on TV. On March 5th, Chief Superintendent Booth, who was in charge of the case, and Ronald Whittle appeared together on a documentary and purposely tried to lay a trap for Donald. Ronald pretended to let it slip about the ransom drop that had failed in Kids Grove, and then Booth pretended not to know anything about it, hoping to convince the kidnapper that Ronald wasn't working with the police after all. The acting in the documentary was great. They even cut the camera as Booth fringed anger about not knowing that Ronald had gone to a drop without informing him. So it seemed believable. It seemed totally believable. Unfortunately, it didn't spark Donald to get in touch with the police. But the segment did spark viewers to call in with things that they had found around the Bathpool Park area. So up until this documentary was released, nobody knew that that drop had taken place. But now that it hit the media, people were like, oh, I was at that park and I found these things and they start turning them all in. 
Within hours of the segment airing, people started coming forward with things that they had found in the park that at the time they hadn't thought twice about. But now knowing that it might be the scene of a crime, people were viewing the items in a different light. Pieces of tape and a pair of gloves were brought forward. And the next day, the headmaster of a local school told police that a pupil at his school had brought him a torch with a dino tape message stuck to it that read, Drop suitcase into hole. Ooh. The boy who had found the torch in Bathpool Park had given it to the headmaster several weeks before, but neither had realized the significance of the fine until the television broadcast. Yeah, why would you? All of this evidence showing up in the park sparked the West Marcier police to go do a thorough investigation of Bathpool Park. Within hours, officers had found a pair of binoculars, a leather jacket, and various pieces of tape which had been there all along. A leather jacket? They missed a leather jacket. Mm -hmm. In the efforts to keep their first sweep of the park discreet, police had missed some very big pieces of evidence. Y'all say. All of which pointed to the drainage shaft that was surrounded by metal railings. Mm. On March 7th, around 4 p.m., 51 days after she had been taken from her home, two police officers climbed into the drainage shaft and descended 60 feet underground. She was gone 51 days. What a nightmare. Yeah. There they found 17-year-old Leslie's decaying body hanging from a wire at the bottom of the ledge. The officer that found her still remembered the site 30 years later. Harold Wright told the Sentinel that, quote, It may have happened 30 years ago, but you remember some murders much more than others. It was a feeling of immense sadness and the knowledge that we now had a murder inquiry on our hands. She had been wired up like a dog to a ledge and would have spent terrifying days in the pitch black, hearing only the rats scraping about, the water running, and the trains rumbling overhead. When we found her, she was naked, wearing nothing but a necklace. Oh, Melissa. How horrific. That's what he did to her. The petite, five-foot-tall teenager's feet were only a few inches from the ground. In the drainage tube where Leslie had been tethered, police found six paperback books, a copy of the Times, two magazines, two brightly colored napkins, and a bottle of brandy. There was no evidence of any food, although Donald would later claim in detail about the meals that he had provided her with. It was another 24 hours before Leslie's remains could be brought back up to the surface. She had to stay down there for 24 more hours. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just so sad that she was left there that long. No, because as a mom, as soon as you would find that out, you would want your daughter. You would want her out of that cold, dark, wet place. I can't imagine what her mom went through. No. When a postmortem was conducted, it suggested that Leslie had died some time ago, most likely within 48 to 72 hours of being kidnapped. She had died instantaneously from a vagal inhibition. The shock of the fall from the ledge where she had been placed had caused her heart to literally stop beating. No way. The pathologist, Dr. John Brown, reported that this would have been induced by high blood pressure in her carotid artery caused by the constrictive wire loop around her neck, triggering an alarm in her brain via the vagus nerve. The brain's response to this urgent signal for the reduction of arterial pressure would be to slow down radically the heart. And when that failed, the heart stopped altogether and she died. Oh, man. They do say that first 48 hours is the most crucial in retrieving a kidnapped victim alive. And they didn't think that she had lived much longer past that. The pathologist noted that Leslie weighed only 98 pounds when she was found and her stomach and intestines were completely empty. So he didn't feed her? No. There are different versions of what ultimately caused Leslie to fall from the ledge where she had been held captive, depending on whose side of the story that you're listening to. The Stratfordshire police believe that because of the tardiness of Ronald's arrival, that Donald had become enraged and pushed the young girl to her death. They maintained that if they had been consulted, there would have been no delay in the ransom drop and that they could have found the girl that night. Oh, shut up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sorry. But what good does that do at that point? It doesn't. It was a total war between the two police forces. The West Marseille officers say that it was the Stratfordshire police's interference on that night of the 16th that caused Donald to fly into a rage and push Leslie. They claim that a black and white police car entered the area and spooked Donald into killing the girl. While the Stratfordshire police venomly deny this and say they had no patrols in the area, a couple that were parked at the Bethpool Park did claim to have seen a flashlight around 2.20 a.m. the morning of the 17th. 
the time that Donald would have calculated, it would have taken Ronald to reach the rendezvous spot had he not gotten lost. Oh, man. DJ Peter Shorto and his girlfriend claimed that after seeing the flashing light, they did see a panda car around the same time in the park, and then an officer stopped and had a cigarette before taking off. Hmm. Donald would give a completely different story when he was eventually caught, but that wouldn't be for another nine months. Nine months? Mm-hmm. Oh. From the time of the kidnapping to when he was captured, Donald's daughter said her father's demeanor went from bad to worse. He was more controlling than ever. He turned into a monster at home under some unforeseen stress that made him completely intolerable. And I can never understand when a person who has a daughter or a child can just so blatantly kill someone else's child. It was probably the stress he was feeling because he had just murdered a teenage girl that was just a few years older than his own daughter. Yeah, he probably felt haunted by it every time he looked at his own daughter. How could he not? Yeah. Just so crazy. By December 11th, Donald was up to his old robbing ways again. His greed would prove to be his downfall. On that day, two uniformed police officers, Tony White and Stuart McKenzie, were in a panda car patrolling the streets of Mansfield when they spotted a man dressed all in black outside a post office, carrying a whole doll and moving suspiciously. Mm. They said that there was nothing particularly alarming about the guy scurrying past them on Lemming Lane, but their spidey senses were perked. As he passed the police car, he averted his face, and this immediately drew Mackenzie's attention. Oh, yeah. According to reports from that day, Mackenzie said to his partner, quote, He has been up to something or is going to be up to something. As a matter of routine, they called him over to question him. The man said that he was on his way home from work, and he told them that his name was John Moxton, stumbling as he clearly made up the name on the spot. I assume from the two police officers' reactions that Dirtbag Donald knew his goose was cooked because he immediately went on the defensive. He yelled to the two officers not to move and pushed a sawed-off double-barreled shotgun that he had been concealing in his holdall at them. No way! He just all of a sudden is like, okay, they've found me, and draws his gun. Yep. He told White to get in the back of the car, making him climb over the seat, and then told Mackenzie to drive normally or you'll both be dead. He kidnaps the officers? He does. This guy. <laughs> I'm shocked. Donald settled into the front seat of the cruiser with the gun pressed into Mackenzie's armpit. At this point, the officers hadn't clued in that it was Donald. They just thought he was some local nutter, is what they called him. This doesn't even seem real. This is something that someone would write up to make a movie out of. Mm-hmm. Ronald ordered them to drive to Bidworth, six miles away, and told them not to look at him. To this day, no one knows why he chose that location, but both officers knew that their chances of survival decreased dramatically if they were to drive into the open countryside. Mm -hmm. While they were driving, Donald had the audacity to ask White and Mackenzie if they had any rope. No! Yep. The situation that Donald had landed himself in was not one that he had prepared for. Donald was a planner, and being ill-prepared was not something he handled well. While he was always sure to pack extra gloves and masks, he hadn't thought to bring any rope with him that day. While the hostage or getaway vehicle made its way down Southwell Road, Officer White saw an opportunity which he couldn't pass up. Donald had let the gun drop a little bit, and it was now no longer pointing right at Mackenzie. He made a grab for the gun, and Mackenzie, who caught on to his partner's moves, slammed on the brakes, bringing the car to a screeching halt in front of Junction Chip Shop in Rainworth. The gun went off, grazing White's hand, but ignoring his injuries, both he and Mackenzie started to tackle Donald, yelling at others and telling them that they had an armed man in the car. Donald fought like a savage beast, and it took two police officers and two other bystanders who were waiting in line at the chip truck to subdue him. Whoa! Keith Wood, who was trained in martial arts, delivered a karate chop straight to Donald's throat, and it stunned him just enough that Ray Morris, a minor was able to grab his wrist while the officers slapped handcuffs on him and the nearby handrail next to the chip shop. I honestly want to shout hooray. Yeah, could you imagine just karate chopping somebody in the neck? Right in the throat? Yeah. That just gave me satisfaction knowing that he got to feel that. Well, you'll get one more satisfying moment. A bystander took Donald's subdued position to throw in a couple more punches at him. <laughs> Good. Yep. The photo that comes up most often when you search Donald's name is 
the original intake photo and shows all the cuts and scrapes that he sustained while trying to fight his way to freedom. Wow. And it just shows how savage he was that it took all these people to subdue him, including like a martial artist and two police officers. Mm -hmm. That's wild. Yeah. Paul Cullen, an 18-year-old eyewitness, said that even when he was cuffed, Donald fought to get away, causing his jacket to come undone and letting everyone see an ammunition belt that was filled with cartridges and knives. Whoa. After collecting the gun that had been used against them from the middle of the road, they searched Donald and his holdall, finding an array of incriminating evidence. He had extra black hoods, reels of sticking plaster, and gloves. All items used for breaking and entering. Just no rope. Just no rope. Even more evidence awaited them back at Donald's home in Bradford. When the locked attic was searched, police found countless army accessories, fake car plates, numerous vehicle ignition keys, a full range of knives, guns, ammunition, and two crossbows. Most of it was stolen. They also found some wire in the attic that matched the kind that was used to tie up Leslie. He even had a six-inch ceramic model of a Black Panther. You're kidding. No, for his own ego. He's like, oh, yeah, man, this is a cool name. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't have given him such a cool name. Yeah. Nicknames for dirtbags don't go. Not ones like that. Donald was questioned for over nine hours before he admitted to kidnapping Leslie, but he claimed her death was an accident, that she had tripped off the ledge and hung herself. Yeah, I'm not buying that. The dirtbag also claimed that he had never intended to kill anyone, that all of the murders that he committed were accidents. Once he started talking, he didn't stop, claiming that, quote, I want to tell you the truth. I hate all of these lies. His statement took up 18 pages as he outlined and went over each crime in detail individually. Wow, that's a long confession. Mm-hmm. When he talked about Leslie, he told the police that they were to blame for her death. It was their failure that they hadn't found her sooner. He taunted the officer saying, quote, Somebody is to blame. I hold you responsible. Donald said that he had never been spooked by a panda car the night of the ransom drop, but that he had thought he had heard police dogs and helicopters coming to get him. That was all part of his imagination. There had never been any dogs or helicopters. He was spiraling. Donald Nielsen was charged with 13 violent crimes in total. His trial for the murder of Leslie Whittle started on June 14, 1976, in a heat wave that did not deter crowds from gathering and lining up to see justice served. There was so much evidence against him that 20 of the press's viewing seats had to be emptied to allow for the 848 exhibits to be brought into the courthouse. Holy moly! Donald's defense tried to paint him as a pink panther rather than a black one a Walter Mitty kind of man that had become obsessed with making it big, one that fantasized about military supremacy, but was really a bumbling buffoon who had stumbled his way into murdering four people. Good. He's not cool. He shouldn't get that. And I'm glad that the press got kicked out because they were partly responsible. It's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that was poetic justice. Yeah. Donald's defense claimed that Leslie had fallen from the edge accidentally and that she had strangled herself with the wire that Donald had placed around her neck. In the post office killings, Donald's defense would take a similar approach and blame each of the victims' misplaced heroics as the actual cause of their death, not the fact that Donald had broken into their homes armed and decided to shoot them. I honestly don't know how defense attorneys do it, like come up with these rationales of why people murder all the time. Yeah. Dr. Lionel Hayward, a consulting psychologist from the University of Surrey, said he found Donald to be a man of high intelligence, about 20% above average, with a complex personality that showed signs of extreme rigidity and inflexibility, and was obsessive to an extremely high degree. While he believed Donald was not a man who desired to be violent, which I have to put a big question mark there. Yeah, he enjoyed that. Yeah. Look what he did just pretending with his wife and child. Mm-hmm. He liked to pretend to be violent with them. Right. But this psychologist believed it was Donald's inability to cope with defeat in situations that he had planned that led to his intelligence breaking down and ultimately to his violent acts. He believed that this diminished capacity in the moment of things not going according to Donald's plans was a psychopathological condition of some severity, but that it did not diminish his responsibility. After 14 days, Donald was convicted of the murder of Leslie on July 1st after just 90 minutes of deliberation. He was given a life sentence. 
Immediately after, he was also held accountable for the murders of Donald Skepper, Derek Aston, and Sidney Grayland, and was given a life sentence for each one of those convictions. Good. Donald was also charged with the attempted murder of Peggy Grayland and PC Tony White, but was found not guilty. What? Yeah. How was he not trying to kill them? Yeah, I don't know how they ruled that one. He was, however, found guilty of several lesser charges, all of which added up and gained him another life sentence. Donald was never charged with the death of Gerald Smith, even though he did eventually die from the complications from the six bullet wounds that he had received from Donald's gun. His death happened over a year after the crime had taken place and at the time of the trial was past the statute that allowed charges to be brought forth. It was only like a year, the mm-hmm. statute? Yeah. Oh, I hope that's changed. It has, actually. Mr. Justice Mars Jones said that the enormity of Donald's crimes put him in a class apart from almost all convicted murderers in recent years, and that in his case, life imprisonment should mean life. No minimum period was set for his release. He told Donald, quote, You were never without a loaded shotgun or other loaded weapons when you went on your criminal expeditions and never hesitated to shoot to kill when you were in danger of arrest or detection. You showed no mercy whatsoever. The judge referred to the kidnapping of Leslie Whittle as the ultimate in villainy, another enterprise that ended in murder. There was a lot of support for the sentence that he received. Oh, for sure. He got what he deserved with that sentence. Mm -hmm. Irene, Donald's wife, was also charged with seven offenses of handling stolen postal orders. Her lawyer, Barrington Black, told the court, quote, that at home, Nielsen became a strict disciplinarian who barked like a sergeant major and told his wife and daughter what to do. And this added value to Catherine's story of her dad becoming more and more tyrannical as his crime spree continued. At an appeal against her sentence, Donald himself confirmed his daughter and wife's accounts of his behavior. He told the court, quote, I was the boss at home. There was no doubt about it. What I said went, and if this involved knocking about, it had to be. He didn't say it in a remorseful way. He failed to see how his actions had caused his wife and daughter pain. To him, his behavior was a matter of pride. And of course they would do what I told them to do because I'm the man kind of attitude. Like he would be embarrassed if it was any other way. That's right. Donald appealed only one of his sentences, the one he received for Leslie. He maintained that that crime was a series of unfortunate accidents, but his appeal was denied in 1977. Up until 2008, at the age of 72, details of Ronald's prison record, conduct, and current location were kept firmly under wraps, presumably for his own protection. But on July 29, 2008, it was leaked that he was serving his sentence at HMP Norwich. At that time, he was one of Britain's longest-serving prisoners, and had been diagnosed with a progressive motor neuron disease. Donald died on the 18th of December 2011 at 6.45 p.m. after being taken from the Norwich prison suffering from breathing difficulties. Good riddance. I think it's so fitting that he had to struggle for his last breath, probably as Leslie had to do. Yeah. And that is the case of the pathetic, blundering, inadequate little dirtbag Donald Nappy Nielsen, whose inadequacies would send him into a rage-filled fit trying to pretend manliness with weapons. Oh, the word you use to describe him as pathetic is perfect. He was definitely a pathetic dirtbag. His selfishness was just next level. Yeah, and his inability to have any kind of remorse. Was he diagnosed as a sociopath or psychopath? His psychological reports never used those words. It was just the OCD type of diagnoses. Yeah. They said he had a psychopathological condition. Okay. Just because for him to blame the victims. Even if Leslie did accidentally fall off the ledge, you still caused that death. And for him to not be able to realize that is very telling. Well, he had never taken responsibility for anything in his whole life. Which just makes him that much more of a dirtbag. This one got me riled. Great job telling the story. I don't know about our listeners, but I could envision this like a movie going on in my brain while you were telling it. I hope that your son appreciates all the work that you put into digging deep in that case. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. And we'll be back again next week when you can tell them another story. Absolutely. Until then. See ya. Bye.
Okay, let's see if this is. Oh, now it's actually touching me. Oh. <laughs> Don't touch me. Can't touch this. <laughs> Can't touch this. <laughs> Don't put that in there because that's really. I'm going to delete that. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about Donald Nelson. Nielsen! You should have been practicing. (laughs) (laughs) I I focused so hard on the burglary that (laughs) you forgot about the name. Nielsen. 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 I can say Nielsen. I know how to say that one. (laughs) Because today we'll be talking about Donald Nelson. Nielsen! (laughs) There's a full-length movie about him. Oh, wow. I didn't watch it. Just so you know. (laughs) I don't like to watch movies because it doesn't always... Stick to the facts. No, and they take dramatic licenses. Exactly. I'll watch a movie after. I hate this guy. (laughs) Why is that funny? I don't know what this is. I'm getting tired. (laughs) I hate this guy. (laughs) Don't you hate all our dirtbags, Christy? (laughs) Pew, pew. He got to rein it in somehow. Because I was picturing (laughs) an alcoholic. Maybe it was a torch. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure torch is what they use in UK for a flashlight. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. And why wouldn't you take the chocolates? <laughs> I would have left that there. <laughs> that it was his inability to. Co- it was his inability to. Co- oh my goodness! Wake up! His inability to what? Call, call, call. After 14 days, Donald was convinced. Not convinced. Convicted. This is why we record during the morning. <laughs>